I am here, Joel, and a good job this morning hosting. It's great to see so much interaction on the chat this morning, favorite music, all of that. It's been uh, fun today. You know, I woke up this morning and just thinking about the, uh, the weather outside, and I think under normal circumstances, I'd look outside and see that weather and go, oh, I wonder how many people are actually going to make it to church this morning. Uh, but of course, your journey to church was uh, bedroom to coffee pot to living room, and I know y'all made it, and the weather didn't affect you at all in that way. So it's great to be with you in this way. It's great to be the church. It's great to see what God is doing uh, in these days. And um, we're getting back into this series, as Joel mentioned earlier. We're in the book of Romans. We're picking it up at chapter 6. And just to recap where we've been already, we, we talked in the first message about the many facets of the gospel, uh, looking at all these different ways that we can look at the gospel itself and understand the gospel. I showed you this big diamond that I had, and we looked at uh, eight facets of that, uh, of, the, of the gospel already. The gospel, of course, so precious to us, uh, more precious than anything else. The gospel is embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When we love the gospel, we, we're loved. Jesus. And so what we've looked at so far in this is, of course, the gospel is power. The gospel is truth. You can see this list building. Uh, the gospel is also wrath. The gospel is resisted. The gospel is substitution, speaking of the substitution of Christ for our life. The gospel is faith. It is peace and it is grace. And uh, to that, we add today, the gospel is freedom. Now, this is an interesting uh, time, of course, to be uh, preaching a passage that looks at freedom, because unless you uh, emigrated to Canada from another country that had a, an oppressive regime, unless that was your experience, uh, most Canadians, uh, for most Canadians, this is a very unique experience, uh, this particular time in Canadian history, because we have, there's no denying this, we have allowed governments at all levels to uh, suppress, to suspend civil liberties, and even uh, to violate, if I can put it that way, to violate, infringe on um, certain portions of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And we have done this in favor of battling uh, the pandemic. And I hope that once it's restored, we will cherish our freedom maybe like never before. Uh, freedom is not something we should take for granted. It's not something that we should uh, treat carelessly, but we should cherish it. Now, as that relates to us being Christians, Christians have been set free from being enslaved to sin. That's what we're going to see in today's passage. And as is true for being Canadian, uh, that freedom comes with, uh, with it certain uh, rights and responsibilities and even um, uh, obligations that we have. In other words, since we have been set free from sin, we should fulfill these obligations that the Apostle Paul, in fact, is going to begin to explain to us here. The Apostle explains this freedom to us as another key facet of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in it we'll see the power of the gospel. So this is Romans chapter 6, the first 14 verses. I'm going to read this pray for us, and then we'll begin to work through this uh, together. So, uh, Romans 6.1, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." Let's pray together. Father, um, I pray that you would bless uh, the opening of your word. We've read it and heard it, God. But I pray, God, it wouldn't just be the opening of your word, but God, the opening of our minds to understand what you have for us, our hearts to believe these words, and God, open our will to commit to these truths and to seek You for the change that can only come through the powerful working of Your Holy Spirit. So God, do this work. You're the only one who can do this now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, are you saying amen where you are? I hope you are. Uh, Let's look at this. Again, at hbc.info, you can find the notes if you haven't already found them there. Uh, Since I have been set free from sin, that's what we're going to be looking at, but let's pause for a minute on that phrase and make sure that we've locked in some important things about it. Since I have been set free from sin, obviously there's an assumption here that we're talking to Christians. We're not talking to non-Christians. Paul's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers in Rome, in the church in Rome. We're reading it all these years later as Christians, as part of a church. And so when he says, since I have been set free from sin, there's a time stamp on that with the word since. From the moment I became a believer, from the moment that my sins were forgiven, from the moment that I declared Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior, from the moment that I punched my ticket to heaven, These things are now true of me. To begin the battle against sin, apart from having that be true of me, that I became a Christian, to try and battle sin without having Christ, without having exercised faith, that'll be nothing but human moralism and empty legalism. If you're not yet a believer, 
but you're watching this message, you're listening to my words right now, you cannot begin to apply the things that we're going to talk about here because they're written for those who are already in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You have not been, and I don't mean to be offensive in any way by this, but you have not yet been set free from your sin, and you are still, listen, as tenderly as I can say this, you're still dead in your sin. You're still enslaved to it. But that can be remedied right now. I mean, you don't need to wait till the end of the message. You don't need to talk to anyone. You just need to talk to God. And you just need to, de- to declare in this very moment, my heart's desire is to be a Christian. I want my sins forgiven. I know I need Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you can pray that to Him right now. And you can give your life to Jesus Christ right now. And then the rest of this message will apply to you. Romans 10, 13 says it very simply. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So call on His name and be saved in this very moment. And once that happens, for for all of us who are believers, uh, once we have been set free from sin, we will refuse to abuse God's grace. I refuse to abuse God's grace. Now, as Paul writes this, there was a very real possibility reading the letter up until the end of chapter 5, a very real possibility of misunderstanding some of the things that Paul was teaching. Some, in fact, had been accusing the believers in Rome, and if you look at chapter uh, 3, verse 8, some had uh, been accusing the believers in Rome of saying that we could do evil, that good may result. The theology, the teaching was being twisted and distorted because it was about grace. And Paul, in fact, contributed to this suspicion about Christianity and about the church in Rome by saying, and this is in chapter 5, we just looked at this in the last message, but in chapter 5, verse 20, he said, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, if you were to stop there and not read any more of the book of Romans, you'd have a very distorted view of grace. This is a recipe, up until chapter 5, this is a recipe for Christianity to be a religion of do what you want, God's got it covered, with no obligation to actually live a a godly life. Jesus saved me, now I can do whatever I want. The math, in fact, on this is very simple. If, if grace is so awesome, and it is, and sin brings on grace, why not continue to sin so that there'd be way more grace for everyone? In fact, this is, this is kind of like my high school um, had the uh, motto, the Latin motto, Carpe Diem. The positive sense of that is seize the day, and that's how our high school intended it, because they didn't want to intend it the other way that it's often used because carpe diem is also the, the mantra, the motto of hedonism. It's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's carpe diem. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But what we're talking about here, what Paul is going to have to address now in chapter 6 is carpe diem on steroids. It's carpe diem plus. It's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and then we get to go to heaven with no consequence. 
John Stott writing about this very fact as he, in his commentary, begins to approach chapter 6, says this, Paul seems to have jumped straight from justification to glorification without any intervening stage of sanctification. That is to say that Paul has gone right from justification, the declaration that we're righteous, our salvation, the point that we actually become Christians, He's jumped all the way from that to glorification, that point in which we get to be in heaven and have our perfected bodies without any, any time spent whatsoever on what it's like from the moment we become Christians to the moment we get to heaven. By the way, the very place that you and I are living right now. So has Paul ignored the process, the process of us becoming like Jesus in this earthly life? Has he failed to address the reality that you and I are only too aware of, the reality of the struggle of the Christian life here and now? Well, he hasn't forgotten it, of course. Paul knows all of this, and that's why he writes chapter 6. In fact, that's why he starts chapter 6 by saying this. He asks, the rhetorical question, what shall we say then in light of everything that we've just heard? Shall we, he says, are we to continue in sin? He addresses the very objection head on. Shall we continue in sin that grace would abound? And his emphatic no delay response comes in verse 2. By no means. The old King James Version said, God forbid If we were to write it in our own language, not a chance. How could you even think such a thing? And he adds this this logical answer. Now, if you like logic, you like this. How can we who died to sin still live in it? To continue to live in sin when you have died to sin is illogical on its face. Because of what Jesus has done for us, our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. Those sins will never be counted against us again. We are dead to them and they are dead to us. The very character of our lives is altered uh, forever and we are no longer identified as sinners, but as saints. Purged of our sin, we are adopted into God's family. We are justified, declared to be righteous. And to make his point, Paul then uses baptism as an illustration. Verse 3, he says, do you not know that all of us, again, he's speaking to Christians, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. He's talking about both spirit baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes upon us at salvation, but also he's beginning to use a picture of water baptism as a means to help us understand this this uh, dead to sin and alive to Christ, a matter that he's speaking of. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So the picture is that of baptism. It's a picture, by the way, of immersion baptism. And um, I'm not saying that because I'm an immersionist, which I am. But I'm saying that because of how he's using the illustration. You can't deny this, really. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him. That's the, you know, down into the water part. We were buried, therefore, with him. 
They have this in their minds now because they've seen enough baptisms and they themselves have been baptized. So they're getting this in their minds. We were buried, therefore, with him, verse 4, by baptism into death. Now, here's his point. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, now there's going to be this parallel that he continues on throughout. The parallel is us and Jesus, the believer in Jesus. We died with Jesus. We were buried with Jesus. We were raised from the dead with Jesus at the moment of our salvation so that, notice he finishes off here by saying, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We were uh, crucified with Jesus. We were buried with Jesus. We were raised to new life with Jesus. And now we walk in the newness of life just as Jesus did. All of that happens, as I said, at the moment of our salvation. And water baptism is the the after-the-event public declaration and identification with Christ in all of these things, in the death, in the burial, in the resurrection, in the newness of life. The ritual of water baptism, this is so important, lest there be any misunderstanding, the ritual of water baptism does not save us. It's merely a picture of the reality. You can only be saved by faith, not works. Baptism pictures our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. And knowing all of this and knowing what Christ has done for me and knowing that I'm dead to sin should compel me to never, never abuse His grace. Look at what Jesus Christ has done for me and look at my identification with Him. And so I'm not going to abuse grace. I'm going to refuse to abuse grace. Considering myself, notice this next now in your notes, uh, considering myself dead to sin. The first step in not abusing grace is to recognize something about your new self as a Christian. Coming off this illustration of baptism, he then says, verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. His death, but also his life. We're going to hang on to that thought and come back to it. We went down into the water, but we also came up out of the water. And so verse 6, we know that our old self, note that phrase, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would, here's a key phrase now for this message, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Why? Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. This is the freedom that Jesus Christ has gained for us by His death on the cross. And and we're going to get to the practical, you know, boots on the ground, dead to sin thing in an upcoming message. But what Paul is really referring to here is more of the one-time declaration of what's happened to us. There's kind of like a past tense, this happened to us. At our salvation, it's not the continuous present tense of the daily grind of the battle with sin. That's our sanctification. We will come back to that. But by dying to sin, he means that moment when we also, to borrow the language that he used in the book of Galatians, when we also were crucified with Christ. I am, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. 
And so the old self, we said we'd come back to that phrase, the old self died with Jesus on the cross. It's not just that Jesus died on the cross. If you're a Christian, you died on the cross with him. The old self. This is why we're so adamant about talking about a conversion experience and, 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 and so careful about people who say, like, I was just raised in the church and it's all I've ever known. There needs to be a moment for all of us where we were in our sin and now we're not in our sin, where we were in darkness and now we're in light, where we were lost and now we're found. The moment when, when we were declared to be dead to sin. The before and the after. Now we walk in newness of life. And we look back on that old life, that pre-salvation life, that pre-Jesus life, and we look back on the That's not my life. That's not who I am. I'm a new creation. I'm not that person anymore. And, and when we declare that, when we see that before and after, that, that darkness and light, that lost and found, when we see our life in that way, it really sets us up to live in opposition to the world that we live in. Well, I mean, once you're rendered dead to sin, you no longer feel at home in a world that cherishes sin and celebrates sin and propagates sin. And that's the world that we live in. Our world does all of those things. When you're dead to sin, you just feel the dissonance with the culture around you. And that's natural because you no longer belong to this world. You belong to Christ. Your conscience notes everything that violates God's moral character. And that's what sin is. It's anything that violates God's moral character. The Spirit of God in you convicts you of what you're seeing because you're dead to sin. You're dead to this world. Christian, we're, we're working mostly here now on an understanding of things, on our theology and our beliefs. But Christian, do you understand all of this? That you are dead to sin. But I also need to see that there's another side of this. I also need to see that if I've been set free from sin, I must consider myself dead to sin, but also alive in Christ. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, and we have if we're believers, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also, notice, live with Him. The two go together. They're inseparable. They're two sides of the same coin. Verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Now mark that phrase, it's so important. A favorite of Paul's that shows the finality and the effectiveness of Christ's death crucified once, once for all. And that was enough. 
But the life he lives, he lives to God continually. The application for us comes in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves, consider yourselves, that's the ESV, the translation I read. The King James says, reckon yourselves. The NIV says, count yourselves. It's kind of a business term. This is what I consider to be true of me now. This is the column in the ledger that I'm putting this in. I consider myself, I reckon myself, I count myself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, verse 11 says. Now think of the implications. Because this means that sin no longer has dominion over you. Which means that you are truly free. The kind of freedom that no one can take away from you. Now, if only we would live like it. That becomes the major challenge. If only we would actually live like it. Far too many of us, having gained this freedom from Christ, far too many of us fail to live like we're actually free. Uh, Before I uh, went to college, between uh, high school and college, I actually took a little bit of time off. At the time, I was a member, a worshiping member, serving member at the Salvation Army. And I got a job uh, through uh, those connections with um, the Salvation Army Correctional Services in the city of London. And I would uh, work on the accused side of things. We would work with the accused, and primarily I would meet those who had been arrested overnight, and they would be in the London courthouse holding cells, and I would meet with them and see if I could assist them in, in any way. And uh, as they worked through the system, I would often see them coming back for court dates and so on. Uh, In the course of doing that job, I met a young man named Fred. Uh, He uh, was um, very committed to doing break and enters and had been arrested multiple times and had been in jail multiple times uh, for committing uh, B&Es, break and enters. And uh, on this one occasion, I met him in the jails. He was very personable. I liked Fred a lot. And um, mom's on this uh, live stream right now, so she'll remember this story well. I was still living at home. It was long before I met Cheryl. And um, I was living at home at the time. And um, I had to find a place for Fred to stay if he was going to be released on his own recognizance. And I couldn't find a place. The shelters were full. There was no options. And so I did... Uh, what um, our family would normally do, and I, I brought Fred home. Now, remember, he was into break and enters, but I brought him home, and he lived with us, with us for two weeks, and uh, we gave him a key to the house, and he came and went um, and uh, never took anything from us. He was only gracious and kind and respectful and, and grateful for what we had done for him. But at the end of the two weeks, we found another place for him, and he still had to work through the court system. But it was looking like he was going to be released and uh, his, his time in jail would be done. And then uh, sometime later, I saw Fred again in the holding cells at the courthouse. And he had been arrested again at the front door of a house that he was breaking into. And the long and the short of it is this. Fred had spent so much time incarcerated in and out, in and out of jail that he no longer knew how to live as a free man. And even when he was granted his freedom, he just kept going back to the slavery of his own sin. Many Christians are like Fred, freed from sin, but living as a slave to it still. And Paul reminds us that we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. And William Tyndale wrote something that I think is helpful for us to understand 
what's going on here. He wrote this back in 1526, so I've updated the language for us a little bit, but he said this, remember that Christ did not accomplish the atonement so that you would anger God again, nor did he die for your sins so that you would still live in them, nor did he cleanse you only to have you return like a swine to your own pigsty, but that you would be a new creature and live a new life aligned with the will of God and not of the flesh. I have been set free from sin and consider myself dead to sin and alive in Christ. Notice now, while aggressively, this works right off the Tyndale quote, while aggressively resisting its dominance in my life. Would that describe you, that you're aggressively resisting sin? Everything we've heard to this point is in, if, if you like grammar now, everything we've heard to this point is in the indicative. It's something we just need to accept, believe, understand. Something that Jesus has done for us that we simply need to acknowledge and receive. But now we turn our attention to the imperative. This is the command. This is the, the part where we have to be engaged in it beyond just believing. In fact, Robert Mounts, one of the commentators I'm reading for this series, he said this, the imperative challenges us to become what we are. We're dead to sin. We're alive in Christ. We should be that. We're free. Let's live as free. This passage is not that you as a Christian will no longer sin anymore. That's not the thing. It's not like we are achieving some kind of sinless perfection. I hope that much is obvious. Sin still plagues us in this world. We all still struggle. We'll struggle until the day we breathe our last. The, weather, the world itself wars against us. Our flesh challenges us minute by minute. And the evil one, we're in a spiritual warfare, the evil one is still very active in this world. But when you sin, you demonstrate an understanding of grace by repenting and with a ruthlessness about eradicating sin from your life. And so there really is, as you look at this, there's a, there's a do not do aspect to this, and there's a do aspect to this. The imperative comes at us both ways. The do not do aspect is verse 12. Let us not sin, therefore, or sorry, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Don't let, this is the imperative, this is the command, don't let sin reign in your body. The power of sin's been broken. The dominion of sin is over. Why are you still letting it rule you? Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness. I think of that verse, make no provision for the flesh. Don't make it easy for yourself to sin. Stop doing these things and start doing some other things. 
That's the do not do aspect to this. Then halfway through verse 13 there, this is the do aspect. This is what I have to do. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Literally present yourself to God. God, I want to live this way. You've said that I'm alive to Christ. I want to be alive for Christ. We're going to talk a lot more about that. What Paul is addressing in this passage as he speaks of grace and how we deal with sin and how grace is portioned to us. But he's addressing this cavalier attitude that we have, this this careless, flippant, grace-abusing attitude that we can have about sin in our lives. where we would have a refusal to confess a sin, a a refusal to repent of it. Paul's wanting us to take a, a good hard look at seriously we take sin in our lives. Are we doing anything to stop it? Have we, for example, excused our own sin? Or worse, redefined it so that it's not sinful? according to our definition of it. Now, I would only mention that because it's actually pretty popular today among professing Christians to redefine sin. This isn't sin. I know that, you know, 2,000 years of church history have said it's sin, but, you know, we're so much more enlightened in the 21st century. That's no longer sin. One of the most obvious gods of this age, of course, is the god of sexuality. The biblical standard that has survived millennia all of a sudden is no longer applicable. God's word is defined to satisfy a changing culture. Even professing Christians now question or reject biblical teaching, the biblical ethic around sexuality. Professing Christians have changed their stance on homosexuality. Professing Christians have changed their stance on extramarital sexual relationships and premarital sexual activity among heterosexuals. It's nothing for professing Christians to explain away an affair by saying, well, you don't know what I have to live with. You don't know what my marriage is like or to justify sex before marriage by saying no one believes that anymore. But the one who is genuinely dead to sin and alive to Christ aggressively resists such things. In fact, the pattern of my life, when I have violated God's moral code, God's moral character, when I have sinned, the pattern that really needs to play out in my life is this, and I think this is going to be helpful for all of us. When I resist sin's dominion or sin's control in my life, First of all, I feel sorrow. I feel the weight of my sin. One of the clearest indicators that you're a genuine Christian is that you feel badly that you've sinned. That's because the Holy Spirit's actually indwelling you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's there. When you're sinning, the Holy Spirit is grieved by that. You're grieved by it. Secondly, when I resist sin's control and I've sinned, I run to Jesus and I agree with him that sin. I'm not like searching the Bible to try and figure out if there's a loophole. I know it's sin. I'm going to 
I'm going to agree with Jesus. Third, I put down this, when I resist sin's control, I decide not to return to my sin. You know what? I feel so badly about doing that, that God had to pour more grace on it, that I've potentially abused grace. I feel so badly about that. I don't ever want to do that again. I'm not saying you won't do it again. I'm just saying the desire in you is, I want to do everything I can to not do that again. Here's a fourth one. I assume responsibility for the consequences of my sin. In other words, what do I need to do to repair the damage that I've done? It's not always possible, but sometimes it is. And then uh, fifth, I put this. Um, I put measures in place to keep from sinning again. I put accountability in place. I just make sure that I'm not making sin available to myself. And we can talk a lot more about that in the coming weeks. You can see both aspects of what we've talked about here in terms of imperatives, both the do not and the do. And then he concludes his argument, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. You should not be controlled by sin since you are not under law but under grace. And far from encouraging us to sin, grace releases us from being under sin's dominion. And as grace-filled lovers of God, we no longer give ourselves to sinful ways. But as we'll see in the latter part of Romans 6, and then we get into an incredible chapter in chapter 7, we're engaged in a pitch battle, a pitched battle to keep ourselves from sinning. And to believe and practice anything else is to show a fundamental misunderstanding of grace and indeed of freedom. And perhaps even an indication that you're not truly Christ's yet. And so we come back to that. You may not yet be alive in God. Not yet dead to sin. And again, you know how to remedy that. Run to Jesus. and Receive Him as your Lord and Savior and find the forgiveness of your sins. So the statement that we're affirming here, and we're going to put it up on the screen and you can... Say this for yourself. Write it down somewhere. Rehearse it again through the week. Make this statement, in fact, make this your own. Since I have been set free from sin, I refuse to abuse God's grace, considering myself dead to sin and alive in Christ while aggressively resisting sin's dominance in my life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the grace that um, has been poured out in our lives, the, the grace of Christ that forgives us, the grace of God that is patient, long suffering to us, the, the grace that is kind to us and merciful. God, help us as believers to resist sin this week, to embrace and live out what we have in Christ, to genuinely live out the fact that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. And God, for those who have not yet given their lives to you, I pray that in this moment they would be praying out in faith and pledging their lives to love and serve Jesus Christ. That they would embrace the beautiful gospel, the powerful gospel of Christ in their life. And I pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.